The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Art Sherwood. He is an associate professor of management at Indiana State University, where he researches cooperatives and teaches strategic management, entrepreneurship, and leadership. Interestingly, he also serves as board president for Blooming Foods, the food co-op in Bloomington, Indiana. He is also a member of CDS Consulting, which provides consultant services to co-op boards and general management. Art, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, I heard you speak at a, a very interesting meeting in Minnesota, which was a membership of Minnesota Food Co-op board members. And you described how to make cooperative membership come alive and more. But as a dietitian learning about cooperatives, I realized that I grew up with the corporate model of food purchasing, but I didn't really learn enough about cooperatives. So why don't you just start out by explaining to our listeners what a cooperative is? Sure. So a cooperative is... uh, business model where basically an autonomous set of individuals comes together and says, let's use a business model to satisfy some needs that aren't being met. Now, this could happen in all sorts of venues. I particularly work with a lot of people who are dealing with food needs, but it could be in terms of purchasing things or there's social cooperatives. There's a variety of different organizational purposes for this type of of organization. And so it's an autonomous association of people coming together to meet a common need and controlling this business in a democratic fashion. So it's owned locally by the people who are starting it. And they are the ones that ultimately put the mechanisms in place in order to control the organization, both in terms of uh, its outcomes and in terms of its process, which then starts to have a lot of impact on how the organization goes about doing its business. Well, when I heard you speak in Minnesota, what really came to the surface about cooperatives was that it was a way to keep wealth in a community. And I got to thinking about you know, the millions of dollars that communities spend on food and how the majority of those dollars really get siphoned out to big corporations that make huge profits but leave the community dry. It's true, we buy our food there and that's wonderful and occasionally there might be a local product on the shelf, but most of the time the products sold at that at that venue and the profits driven at that marketplace go out of the community. And what impressed me so about the cooperative information that I gained in Minnesota was that, wow, here's a model that keeps, in the food model anyway, it keeps farmers on the land, it supports local and regionally produced food, 
and it keeps the money that community members spend on food in the community. And lo and behold, you mentioned the fact that the United Nations last year declared 2012 the International Year of Cooperatives. And I went online and did some research, and I found that the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said, cooperatives are a reminder to the international community that it is possible to pursue both economic viability and social responsibility. We don't really see that as a mission in the corporate marketplace. Yeah, totally, totally right. And, and it's understandable. Uh, a conventional organization, such as a corporation, is built to maximize shareholder wealth. Like it or not, that's what it's built to do. It's possible that there are multiple instances where that then results in other good things happening. But regardless, when push comes to shove, that's the purpose of the organization. For a cooperative, it's much more about maximizing meeting the needs of the owners. And these aren't not-for-profit organizations. These are organizations where, at the end of the day, you want to have a positive bottom line, but the difference is, how big does that bottom line need to be? That's not a priority for the cooperative organizations. Additionally, what do you do with that bottom line leftover money called profit? In the end, really, we're talking about impact. And what I love about the cooperative model is the massive potential it has to have impact where we want it to be. And let's think about that. You know, so in terms of a consumer cooperative like a food cooperative, it's going to have impact in terms of giving access to food that otherwise might not be accessible in terms of food that is free from pesticides, food that has been harvested and grown in ways that respect the humans that are doing that work, i.e. the farmers, food that nourishes people in ways that stuff that's just wrapped up in a piece of plastic might not be able to do. And it is highly processed and doesn't even look like anything like the original food did in the first place. But it's not only, you know, customer impact, it's also impact on suppliers. And if you look at the average co-op in the National Cooperative Grocers Association, those folks are buying from an average of 51 different local farmers. They're also buying from 106 different local providers for other types of goods for their retail operation. This is much different than just buying from the one place with a big semi-truck that came from who knows where all over the country or out of the country or around the world. And so you have a big impact on suppliers because all of those local farmers who have nowhere else to put their food are now able to find an outlet for their food, and oftentimes cooperatives act as food incubators for these up-and-coming smaller farms that are trying to grow food in a, in a way that's, that's more sustainable. Mm-hmm. And the third piece is that not only does it impact the customers and suppliers in our community, it actually impacts the competitors, too. I mean, right in Bloomington, We have five stores in this 80,000-person town. There's also multiple Kroger stores. If you go into those Kroger stores and you compare the selection of food they have now relative to the selection of food they had eight, nine, ten years ago, the, the amount of organic food has gone way up. 
thus giving people who may not come to our cooperatives, but those that go to Kroger are accessing more and more food that doesn't have some of the problems that conventional food has. And so it's even making competitors better. So overall, the impact on our communities is is pretty dramatic by people just doing these things to meet owner needs. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, years ago, I used to work at the University of Missouri in Extension, and I remember fielding calls from individuals who wanted to create kind of a mom-and-pop shop kind of products, be it a barbecue sauce or a pickle or sauerkraut, Mm -hmm. and they wanted to find a market to sell it in. And Kroger's a great model. There are many chain grocery stores around the country, and it seems to me that one of the difficulties they had was getting shelf space. And if I'm understanding the cooperative method correctly, if you were a cottage industry and you had a local product that you wanted to sell, it would probably be easier to get it on the shelf at a cooperative grocery store rather than a big box or even a, a large grocery chain like Kroger. Is that correct? I think the evidence is clearly true on that. I can give you an example. I, for seven years, I uh, owned and operated an organic farm. And working with our local cooperative was able to really build a program to have local food in a very professional way be grown for and be put on the shelves of the cooperative. Our cooperative got very good at this, and more local farmers either started up, and even other local providers too, so, so people who made jams or people who sold, I mean, even artwork, et cetera, et cetera, started to be able to find access to getting shelf space in these organizations. Now, the interesting thing was, and this is where kind of where this incubator idea comes up, was eventually it was so successful that there were all these other farmers that needed shelf space and there really wasn't as much shelf space as needed to be. Our farm actually moved on to become mostly a community-supported agriculture farm, making more space for the smaller farmers who were starting up and needing shelf space. And the great thing about it was our co-op was absolutely willing to put the time and energy and effort, even though it was expensive, to help us be successful And I'll tell you, my experience with the larger box stores, both conventional and natural organic, was much, much different. With one of the major players for tomatoes, they basically told us that the tomato had to be exactly this size, had had to have no blemishes whatsoever, everything else wasn't acceptable. And I'm like, well, half our crop has these wonderful characteristics that make them this fantastic tomato, this heirloom tomato grown right here in Indiana with seeds that have been here for 70 years. Nope, not acceptable to us. It has to look like this. So we decided not to do business with them because we'd basically been throwing away half our crop. And with another one, they'd got the local chain had been bought out by the, the nation's largest natural organic store, And while they were certainly happy to list us as a local provider, they cut our margins so far that we would actually be losing money to be selling to them. And they they just lost all their ability because of the model. Not the people. The people were fine, but they were constrained by the way the model was building all these rules to make it so that it was impossible to work with a local provider, even though they were happy to put our picture up on the wall. 
Oh, very interesting. It's all coming together, and I know that here locally, I'll give you another example of how crazy it is where we source our groceries from. My son was at a grocery store the other day. I, I won't m- name names here right now, but he said, Mom, they had heirloom tomatoes from Canada. He said, you know, it, it was right. in September in Missouri. I mean, we have such delicious heirloom produce right now. Yeah. And another chain that recently came to our community, Natural Grocers, one of the things that customers repeatedly ask for is local organic. And when I talk to the staff about it, I'm often told, well, we have constraints. We can't do that, even though we'd like to. There are constraints in place, just as you described. So for entrepreneurship, and I think all Americans' ears should be perking up at this point. But for entrepreneurship, the cooperative model wins every time. Uh, I mean, I think absolutely right, both in terms of it being a community entrepreneurship effort and the opportunities it provides for other local associated entrepreneurs. I'll tell you, my dream is that all of these community entrepreneurs, all you wonderful people that take all your energy find community problems and use you know kind of classic not-for-profit solutions to solve them i would ask you to take a look at the cooperative model as an approach to solving these community problems there are so many opportunities to use a cooperative model which means you don't have to go to the trough and beg for grants you have a business model that makes money for you so that you can take those profits reinvested into solving more of those problems and having greater community impact. And that approach, which a lot of people call social entrepreneurship, but this is using a cooperative model, is is really powerful and not used nearly as often as I think the opportunity would allow. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Art Sherwood. He is Associate Professor of Management at Indiana State University, where he researches cooperatives and teaches strategic management, entrepreneurship, and leadership. He is also Board President for Blooming Foods, the food co-op in Bloomington, Indiana. He is also a member of CDS Consulting, which provides consulting services to co-op boards and general management. You bring up a really good point, Art, about how do we learn about these alternative models? And because you are a professor of management, I have to ask, how many business schools in the United States teach the cooperative model as a strong alternative to the corporate model? Uh, zero that I know of, which is interesting. I mean, this this goes into, I, I just wrote an article for a trade journal about this very issue. And conventional businesses have invested an enormous amount of money into universities to ensure that they are researched, that they are taught, that they produce employees that are able to fit into the conventional model of business. And there has been a very limited amount of effort to do any of those things with the cooperative model. And I think there's a few explanations for that. One is that there's much more centralized control in conventional businesses that allow for the collection of money and an investment of money into naming business schools and and providing lots of dollars for, for research on that model. Cooperatives 
by and large, start as uh, a grassroots effort of people saying, hey, we need to find a way to meet our common needs. Let's get together, have a democratically controlled business, and go about doing that. I think the other is that traditionally cooperatives have been studied mostly in the ag econ part of the world. And there are five or six centers for agricultural economics that focus on cooperatives in the United States, and they've done some good work over time. But what's interesting is that there has been a major push in business schools to figure out this ethics thing and to figure out this social entrepreneurship thing. And my sense is that with some of the efforts that are now going on with people starting to do important research and efforts on cooperatives, that that'll all start to marry up here over the next five to ten years. And what they claim as an alternative model, which is kind of like saying that pesticide-free food is an alternative <laughs> exactly. model, form of food. Exactly. I mean, people have been cooperating for millennia, you know, yes. uh, to, to solve their own problems, and, and the, the corporation is quite young, really, relative to it. So it's a, it's a parallel uh, it issue. It is. It's great. Yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, there's there's very little effort there's very little focus on it now, but thankfully the uh, some wise people created the tenure system and uh, therefore I teach cooperatives whenever uh, I have the chance. Well, let's say a community now is intrigued by everything that you've said thus far, and they want to poke around and start thinking about starting a cooperative in their community. Where's the first place they would go? Great question. So now some people are starting to say, hey, could we, they might not be saying this in their heads, but they're saying, you know, how can we uh, do this uh, cooperative entrepreneurship thing? There is an awesome website called Food Co-op Initiative. Um, I think it's foodcoopinitiative.coop. And the co-op community, the food co-op community, a number of years ago, one of our uh, absolutely legendary people, um, Marilyn Scholl, stood up and challenged the food co-op community to say, what is it going to take to make 500 food cooperatives be alive and well and thriving in the United States? And thus created an initiative called Food Co-op Initiative, uh, or Food Co-op 500, which then has now morphed into the Food Co-op Initiative. Led by a guy named Stuart Reed, it is the place to go to get critical information on how to start to organize yourself, how to start to build the build the organization itself, how to source capital, how to build, bring in professional staff. A lot of people have the idea that food co-ops are this, this little, small, everyone volunteers for it, and this is just not the case. I mean, just with the, the co-ops I, I work with, they range in size from a startup to over, you know, $50, or $50 million in sales. I mean, with 350 employees. I mean, our uh, co-op in Bloomington uh, is 20-plus million dollars in sales, five stores, 240 employees. It's one of the larger employers in the, in the county. And this is, you know, professional staff. But the startup people need to make take certain steps and to get it going until you can hire someone who then takes it and grows it with the guidance of a board of directors. So um, that, that website is absolutely essential and can help people go through the process. All right. We'll make sure that we post that website with our interview because I think people will be ready 
to start learning more clearly. One of the things that you mentioned, the comparison between a co-op and the corporate model, Walmart, let's, let's look at Walmart, for example. The employees at a cooperative are going to be more likely to make a living wage than employees at, say, a Walmart supercenter. So I would think it would be better for a community, right? You've got when a family is making a living wage, the children in that family are better able to succeed in school, for example. The economic well-being of a family is so tied to our future success as a nation. It would seem to me that simply by having the cooperative model in place and ensuring that economic well-being of families and communities one would want to see more cooperatives open rather than these corporate big box models that take money from a community and leave people needing basic necessities. I think this is clearly the case. The evidence is starting to become more and more clear about this. If you look at cooperatives as a whole and their impact economically and how they're, they're doing things, and you look at the United States, the, the conventional model of a few people own the business and everyone else works for them, let's siphon the capital and money out of the communities and to a centralized place, whether it be in Arkansas or Texas or wherever it might be, and enrich a few, and everyone, you know, supposedly it trickles down, which we're pretty convinced it's not doing. It, it becomes clear that it, it's hard to see what the cooperative impact would be. But if you take it to the level of the community and the family where co-ops exist and compare that community to a place where co-ops don't exist, the difference becomes striking. If you look at a food cooperative and the chances of it having at least its full-time employees being working at a, as a, with a living wage is very, very high. The percentage of people who are working full-time is very high relative to uh, conventional models. And the chance for consideration for employee salaries and keeping them on the job is part of the conversation when decision makers are deciding how to deal with uh, making sure that the organization is successful financially. And it's, it's just not, it's not, the incentives to have it as part of the conversation, a central part of the strategic conversation by the leadership of the organization is just not as high in a, in a, a non-cooperative model. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I noticed during the meeting in Minnesota And I have to just add here that, of course, Minnesota seems like this great national model. They have 42 food co-ops within that relatively small state. So I think that Minneapolis is is really strong in that group itself. So well, I mean, they're a great model in that we can we can all look at them and say if they can do it, we can do it. So you know, leading by example. But it also dawned on me that food co-ops or the cooperative model take work. Democracy takes work, right? I talk about this all the time with regard to food, that democracy is a muscle. If we don't use it, we're going to lose it. And if we lay down and take the easy approach and let other people control more of our lives, including the food system, at the end of the day, 
we will be less well off than if we take a participatory role and pay attention, be vigilant citizens, pay attention to who's producing our food, where it comes from. You know, the whole system takes every citizen's attention. That's what I recognize from the cooperative model. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why people shy away from becoming involved and getting a cooperative started. Um, I, I think that's possible. Let me, let me address that in two parts. Number one is that I, I mean, I deal with a lot of people all the time. And certainly I deal with a lot of people in the conventional business world. And it has become very clear to me that very few of us have actually grown up and built skills that really allow for successful participation. Mm-hmm. We haven't had it modeled for us. We we certainly don't get it from our national leadership in terms of how people should participate and cooperate. And so we are left with the only book we have to grab is the very intensively competitive shark tank type uh, approach to doing business. And that's really unfortunate because businesses are made up of human beings. And while it is harder to have human beings participate with one another in decision-making or the democratic process or whatever it might be, what's amazing is that there's, it's quite clear that if you do all that hard work up front, making it all happen on the back end is much smoother because people are aligned, they've, they've engaged in the process, they own the process. I think that the model for cooperatives has not been placed in the hands of people that are willing to do that work. And I'm telling you, I watch awesome communities like Bloomington, um, and they're all over the country, where people are doing the hard work of not-for-profits or working in their churches or working wherever they're doing, right? They're not getting paid tons of money to do it. Why are they doing it? Because they believe in their communities. They believe in building a resilient society, a place where people can live and be respected and, and have, have an honorable life, and they just, the toolbox called the cooperative hasn't been opened for them. And I think once they learn about it, they'll be excited that this is an approach that could really help meet those needs, and the work they're putting in, I don't know that it would be any different than trying to do any of the stuff that they're already doing. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's something that we all hunger for. You know, food brings us together, but we are all hungry for these relationships and having a strong sense of community and conversation. We have one minute, and I need to wrap up. Do you want to leave us with a charge? Well, I think that we need to believe that our communities can be the the way that we can dream them to be. And we can't give up and just say that's the way it is, hunker down in our own homes and just ignore the the fact that we live in our society. It is unfortunate that people, when they see problems, will say, why doesn't the government solve it? And they'll look to the government and it doesn't get solved. They'll look to corporations and they'll say, solve it, and no one solves it. It seems the last thing that people will reach for is, is standing up and saying, we have the power to solve it ourselves. And I'm telling you, people have the power to to solve their problems themselves. And and this model is one of the approaches to doing that. Well, 
Art Sherwood, I want to thank you so much for your inspiration today. Listeners, we've been speaking with Dr. Art Sherwood. He is an Indiana State University Associate Professor of Management. He is Vice President at the Blooming Foods Co-op Board of Directors, and he is a member of CDS Consulting Co-op, which delivers training in board leadership development. This has been an enlightening conversation. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I thank our listeners for joining us, and most of all, I want to thank you, Dr. Sherwood, for being my guest and teaching us about a healthier model. My pleasure. Thank you.